You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please feel free to contact us by visiting our website, harvestoakville.ca. All right, loved ones, it's story time. Story time in the Gospel of Luke. Once you find a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be looking at chapter 10 today, specifically the parable of the Good Samaritan. All right, we're going into story time, as I said. It's in Mark chapter 4. Let me just read it for you. But in Mark chapter 4, verse 2, it was said of Jesus, it says this, He began to teach many things in parables. He began to teach many things in parables. It's amazing to think of the content of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Of the content in these three Gospels, over one-third of their content is written in the form of parables by Jesus. This tells us that Jesus loved illustrations. He loved stories. He loved parables. Why? He loved using stories, illustrations, images, and examples to reach the hearts of his listeners and to capture their imaginations. He would use images of everyday life, creating many dramas and examples that his listeners could relate to. This would reach all who were listening, rich or poor, old or young, educated or uneducated as well. He said words in pictures because pictures are powerful tools of communication and Jesus would paint pictures for the mind that would arrest the mind and capture the mind and spur on the mind to the heart to see this truth unfolded within their lives. But as we come to the parables of Jesus, though, we need to know that his parables were unique. They were so unique because in one sense they were so obvious, but in another sense they were so hidden. The Bible says only those with eyes to see and those with ears to hear could truly grasp the the truth that was conveyed in supernatural ways resulting in life change. And as we come to the parables specifically found in the book of Luke, I want to make sure we're on the same page as to what is a parable exactly. And a classic definition of a parable is this. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now that is cute. I like it. I do like it in one sense. But I think parables we'll learn is more than that too. It's not just limited to a heavenly story or an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The word parable literally means to come alongside. It means to come alongside. So in the words of Warren Wiersbe, and here's the definition or definition he gives of a parable on the screen here, he says this, a parable is a story or comparison that is put alongside something else to help make then the lesson being conveyed uh, more clear. So a parable was used, it was designed to take a known, something that was known, example people understand, a metaphor they could relate to, an illustration they could identify with, to take a known, to place it alongside an unknown in order to make the unknown more known. You follow me there? Let me say it again. A parable was designed to take a known, to place alongside an unknown in order to help make the unknown more known. That is why we love parables so often. Hardly any of us here today are farmers, but the parable of the sower is something that we picture, we, we kind of we love, we, we try to imagine in our minds, we can see the seed falling on the different soils and whatnot. It's something that is used to create life change enough in, in the pursuit of truth. This is a way to look at a parable. Here's another definition of a parable. One commentator said a parable is an expanded analogy which is used to convince and persuade. 
And that's what we're doing in this series for sure. Taking the words of Christ and seeing his parables to convince and persuade us to life change. A scholar named Klein Snodgrass, he said this about parables. I'll put it on the screen. This is a great definition, even a better name, don't you think? I love that. A parable's ultimate aim, he said, is to awaken insight, to stimulate the conscience. That's going to happen today. By faith, this will happen today. It's happened in my heart this week. And I pray it's going to happen in yours as well in this first story of compassion that we come across. To stimulate the conscience and ultimately to move us to action. To move us to life change again in Jesus Christ. Parables are used in this way, in a very unique way, in a very beautiful way. So parables are both intriguing and exciting. They capture our minds and they spur on our hearts. And I I want you to know that as I went through this parable that I've heard hundreds of times in my life before. I've heard it, I've, I've read it hundreds of more times but I was so challenged and so convicted. The Spirit of God was working on me. And I'm excited today to let you share in my conviction too of God's Word. But I said to my wife, Jill, even yesterday, I said, Jill, when we get home from the services, I want to take some time. And I just I want to sit down and talk about this, this message, this passage. And I want us to think and pray about how this relates to us to a greater degree. Because I just think it's that important. It's what parables do. It capture my mind and heart again. But it's spurring me on to change. It's spurring me on to what God wants to do. And this is why Jesus wrote these parables in the form of a story. So loved ones, we should be expected in this series. We should be excited. As Jesus sits down and says, let me tell you a story. And today we find out he's going to tell us a story of compassion. A story of compassion. You know, as elders, we've been through seasons where we looked at parables in Matthew in the past of our church. We've seasons our church, parables in Mark. But we said, let's, let's dig into parables specifically in Luke. And listen, not just the parables in Luke, but the parables that are unique to the gospel of Luke is what this series is being built around. And the elders were excited to do this because you won't find them, these parables, anywhere else in Scripture. The parables that we go through are unique specifically to the gospel of Luke. And so let me tell you a story, again, a story of Compassion. What I love about this too is each week's going to be a different theme. This week's compassion, next week's something totally different, and the week after that, something totally different. But we're praying that God would draw a line, a thread through all of these parables as we go through this week by week. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And just before we do that, let me just, let me just pray right now as we ask God to teach us, to change us, to be glorified through us. Father, I just want to take a moment to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the Pentateuch, Lord, for the law of Moses. I want to thank you for those five books, Lord, that teach us so much and reveal your plan and your heart, Lord, for your people, not just then, but for now, too. I want to thank you, Lord, for the books of history and your word, Lord, the narratives that we read and the information we learn, Lord, and the stories that inspire us. I want to thank you for the poetry, Lord, that is all throughout your word that just captures us and, and inspires us and teaches us. Thank you for the psalmist that wrote in the way they did. Thank you for the words of prophecy found throughout all your scripture that, that had reached for, that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, Lord, and some prophecies yet to be fulfilled in Christ as he returns for the second time. Thank you for the apocalyptic literature, Lord, that spurs us to imagine what it will be like at the end of days and when Christ returns and when everything is fulfilled. Thank you for the 
genre of epistles in the New Testament, Lord, and all the words and exhortation to the churches and the ones that we've personally been so blessed by that we have read and have placed ourselves into those churches and have said, yes, Lord, thank you if you challenge us to change and teach us what it means to walk in the ways of Jesus Christ. As a church, you've guided us through this, Lord. And finally today, I want to thank you for the Gospels. I want to thank you for the Gospels dedicated to the good news specifically of Jesus Christ himself. Where would we be without the Gospels, Lord? And within the Gospels, I want to thank you for the parables. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, in your perfect wisdom, how you spoke these stories that many would not understand, but some would. And those who would, they'd be changed forever. And I pray, Lord, we would be found in those people who would have eyes to see and ears to hear, and we also would be changed forever. Through the parables within the Gospels, in the New Testament, alongside the Old Testament, in the beautiful unerring word of God. To you, Lord, I pray we submit ourselves today as a church, as a family, excited and expectant for the story that you will tell us now, a story of compassion. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. Luke 10, verse 25. So Jesus has been teaching, ministering, healing. He's been working. He's creating a stir. People are understanding who he is. The religious leaders, of course, are so jealous. They're so envious. They have to be the top notch all the time. They don't like what Jesus is doing. They're trying to get in his way. They're trying to find cracks in his system. They're trying to prove that he's just a man. This is part of what's happening here as we come to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, getting your attention, and behold, a lawyer, a law expert, stood up to put him to the test. To put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Well, what is written in the law, and how do you read it? And the lawyer, the law expert, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. I want to stop there the first part of this parable because this is a very important part that is often not seen or not related to the parable of the Good Samaritan, yet it's in the very context of what we do together today in the Word of God. This is a story of compassion and these verses set up the story very important in the context of compassion. This takes us then to the first point and let me put it this way. The source of compassion is this, loved ones. It's loving God. The source of compassion is to love God. And so when we come to verse 25, our text today begins with a lawyer or a law expert. Some would call it a scribe. He's an expert in the law of Moses. He is steeped in God's law and, make sure you want to know this, steeped in tradition. Now, the lawyers here were not known for their humility. Much like today. No offense, lawyers. No offense, no offense, no offense, all right? They were known for their intellectual pride. They were known for their superiority as a whole. Notice there in verse 25, behold, a lawyer stood. So picture yourself there. Jesus is teaching. He's doing the things that he's doing. A lawyer stands up, and we're not totally sure, but as from the context and what's coming, it seems like it's standing up in a combative sense, at least in the prominent stance, at least in let me now speak and be heard because I have something very important to say, and I'm going to show you this, Jesus of Nazareth, what this stuff is really about, and I'm going to test you that I might embarrass you, that I might prove that I know more than you do when it comes to God's law. 
The lawyer stood up. He's almost face to face with Jesus. There's a confrontation of sorts. At least there's a debate forming of who truly knows more when it kind of comes to the word of God or the law of God. So he stands up. If you look at verse 29 too, and we'll get there in a little bit, but this is more of our context here. It says the lawyer desiring to justify himself said to Jesus. So he's not being justified by Christ. He's trying to justify himself. His pride has been hurt. We'll get there. It's proving his motives were not pure. Pride was his motivation. People were listening. He had to save face. He wanted to look good in front of those who thought he was smart. That's what pride does. It's so ugly. This is what's happening here within this text. But in verse 25 back there, it says the lawyer stood up and to put Jesus to the test. So from these three examples, it's very clear again what the lawyer, the law expert, is trying to do. He's standing up in order to try to trap Jesus. He's trying to trap Jesus in a question to make Jesus look foolish. What Jesus will do, though, is Jesus will use the words of the lawyer in order to trap the lawyer. Here's a little bit of application for you. I just give you this advice. Um, Don't try to outsmart God, all right? It just doesn't go well. And we look at the lawyer like, man, what what an idiot. Why would he do that? But listen, listen, we try to outsmart God sometimes a lot, too. And we think, well, God, I know you said, but I'm going to do this. And maybe you can't see, but I'm going to hide this in from you. Give me a break. Give me a break. Let's not try to outsmart God. The lawyer was trying to outsmart God, and he will never win. We will never win when we do that. However, the question the lawyer asks is a good one. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a very, very important question. But Jesus, knowing the man's heart perfectly, and often as he did, Jesus chooses to respond to a question with a question. So look at verse 26 now. In verse 26, Jesus said to him, well, what is written in the law, and how do you read it? Notice this. Jesus points the law expert to the law. Why? Not because the law saves us. It's the law that tells us we need to be saved. That's very, very important. Jesus knows what he's doing. He refers the law expert to the law, not because the law saves us. The law reveals to us that we cannot fulfill the requirements that are set upon us. Therefore, the law is a mirror showing us our sin, revealing that we need someone beyond ourselves to save us from the sin that we can't fulfill that is required in the law. Make sense? That's what he's doing. He tells up, well, what do you think about the law? What does the law say? What does the law say? It's a wonderful move by Jesus. It's like he knows what he's doing. The lawyer knew the answer to his own question, though, which is really interesting. In verse 27, he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. In verse 28, Jesus affirms the answer given as being correct, but Jesus then adds this, and this is massive. Jesus says, Do this, and you will live. Do this and you will live. Now here's what I want us to see as the intro to this very familiar parable, the story of compassion. Many, many people could give you the gist of the parable of the Good Samaritan, but very, very few people could give you the context of verses 25 to 28. And yet this sets up the entire context and the teaching of Christ. What do we learn from this? And this is what I want you to hear. I want, I, I want me to hear this too. Many people want to be people of compassion, yet they fail to understand the true source of compassion, which is found, I believe, in verses 25 to 28. Because here we have yet again in Scripture, we have a lawyer with a bunch of head knowledge, but no heart. 
He's got the answer in his brain, but there's been no communication with his brain to his heart in order to see real fruit. The way we prove we're disciples of Jesus Christ is by the fruit that comes through our lives. And this is why Jesus then says, do this and you will live. In other words, it's not good enough to know it. you got to live it. It's not good enough just to be able to say it. you got to show it. In other words, he's saying this, you got the information, where's the delivery? You got the talk, where's the walk? You got the ingredients, but where's the meal? The lawyer was really living up to his name. He was incredibly legalistic. And notice this about legalistic people. The most legalistic people will be people who are all law and no love. All law, no heart. That's why the most legalistic men and women, but men, will belong to families where the children are shattered, where the spouses are distant and wounded. Because the man walks into the home and he's legalistic, he's all law. It's bang, 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 and crushing, crushing, weight of law, and all law, and all rules, and no love. And what child can withstand that type of environment? Not one. What spouse, and women can be this way too, But what wife can withstand the harsh legalities of a man coming down with brutality of truth, truth, law, 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 but no grace and no love? Now, there will be other messages in God's word where it's not okay to be all grace without truth. It's grace and truth as Christ was, but that's for another day. Today's message we're seeing, though, all law and no love is a big, big problem. This is not diminished truth. Truth is wonderful. If it's not carried, though, with grace and love, you become all law, you have no love, you will crush the people around you. You are completely missing out on the will of God for your life. That was our law expert right here. He had it all here, but he had nothing here. He had the right information, he said the right answers. But his heart was lacking, finding loopholes in the system of God. Be very careful of legalism. You got the ingredients, but you don't have the meal. But amazingly here, the answer of the lawyer is right. He's affirming what Christ called the greatest commandment. In Mark 12, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and your strength. And he says, And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, There is no other commandment greater than these. And then in verse 28 of our text, Jesus holds up this and he says, Do this and you shall live. Now, be clear here. Jesus is not implying a works-based salvation. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here, and if you get this properly, when you say love God perfectly and love your neighbor as yourself, and Jesus says do this and you will live, I mean, if you're seeing the gospel for what it is and you see your heart for what it is, love God perfectly and love my neighbor as myself perfectly, do this and I will live, I don't stand a chance, man. I mean, do you know your heart? I see my heart. I'm wicked. I have wicked sin every day. Even just this week, under the conviction of the word, recognizing the love I don't have. I can't love God perfectly. I'm always failing in that regard. I don't love my neighbor as myself as I should. I'm always failing that. Do this and live. I don't stand a chance. I don't stand a chance. When Jesus says do this and live, the proper response under the light and the knowledge of the gospel is to fall on your face in front of Jesus Christ and say I'm a sinner and need a savior. Help me, Lord Jesus. I can't do this. I can't do this. And everyone who responds truly to the gospel in some form or another, they fall on their face. and I can't. I can't. I can't. You must do it in me, Jesus Christ. That's the whole reason he came, lived, died, and rose from the dead. It's because we can't. This lawyer had a chance to respond in grace-based desperation, but he didn't do it. He didn't understand that true love and true life only come from one source, God himself. 
I want to point out the obvious to you that right within the great commandment, the order is significant. Love God, then love your neighbor. Until we have real love vertically, we won't see real love horizontally. And a lot of people rush to the horizontal love and they fail because they cannot do something without gaining it from the source of the vertical nature of the love of God. It's his love that comes in us as we gathered here and goes through us. Otherwise, it is not genuinely from him. If it's not genuinely from him, it's not done for his glory. It's not done for his glory. God doesn't see that as anything of any value or merit. Love God. Love God to genuinely then love your neighbor. Now this, loved ones, this truth, the law expert was no expert. But let us learn today that the story of compassion begins with a genuine love for God. The source of compassion is to love God with all our heart. But again here, the lawyer, he did not do this. Takes us to point number two. The scope of compassion is this, is to the most unlikely The scope of compassion will be to the most unlikely. So now we come to the portion of Scripture that we know so well, but I'm hoping you're seeing now why context can be so helpful and is so important. Look at verse 29 now. It says this of the lawyer, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus. Now this is the lead into the amazing parable of the Good Samaritan. The lawyer, though, desiring to justify himself. This leads us to understand further to how messed up his heart was. Instead of, again, Christ justifying him, he attempts to justify himself before Christ. That is always going to be a very bad plan. His heart was not tuned into the real issue. He wanted to debate. His pride was trying to prove himself again to those who were around. And you can almost hear him saying smugly, Oh yeah, who's my neighbor? Oh yeah? Who's my neighbor? Now this is a classic lawyer move right here. He's like, well, yeah, well, let's define our terms then. Love your neighbor, but who do you think your neighbor, who do I think my, let's, let's, let's decide who, who my neighbor is. But notice the problem with what the lawyer has just done. And who is my neighbor? What the lawyer is doing right there, in that question, he's desiring to separate humanity into groups. And notice what he's doing. Well, who's my neighbor, Jesus? Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? He's insinuating right there that not all people are his neighbor. What he's saying then is my love is to only go to sections of society or people that I deem are worthy of my love. And there are sections of people in society that are not worthy of my love. He's missing the point from the very beginning. Because he's all law, no heart. And because he's all law, no heart, he's trying to find loopholes in the commands of God to justify his life. Watch this, watch this, watch this. Very, very important. The lawyer here is forming a theology that condones his own sin. Be very careful of that in your life and in my life. Be very careful when we are tempted to form our own theology to excuse us from the clear commands of God. And we are tempted to do this all the time. Leaders form their own theology of pride versus humility and they get their own definition of humility to excuse them from the obvious path of pride that they're on. Men will form their own theology when it comes to lust and redefine it in their own terms in order to appease their conscience to the reality of the sin that is there. We will form our own theology as it pertains to money and how we spend and materialism and our lack of generosity and our stinginess in giving because we want to form a theology that condones our sin and we change the commands of God to make us feel better but all in reality we are killing ourselves in the presence of God because we are ignoring and rejecting his will for our lives. 
This is what the lawyer is doing right here. Who's my neighbor? Your definition, not my definition. And my definition allows me to not love people I don't want to love. But it lets me feel better about myself because I know stuff, but I don't live it. Watch out for that, man. That's evil. And that's what's happening right here within this lawyer. But this is what's really, really sweet here. What Jesus does now, he tells a story that changes the question entirely. So the lawyer's saying, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Jesus tells a story which changes the question. Here's the, here's the whole thrust of this message. I say it here, I'm going to end with it as well. The question changes from who is my neighbor to this question. The question ultimately from Jesus is, what kind of neighbor am I? And there's a massive difference between the two. It's not about who is my neighbor. The question is, what kind of neighbor am I? And now we see the parable of the Good Samaritan, verse 30. Check it out. So in response to this question that the lawyer asks, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, it just happened that a priest was going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, his listeners would be, oh, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, here it is, here it is, he had compassion. That's the text, that's the message, that's the big idea. He had compassion. He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And Jesus says in verse 36, Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's just review this parable right here. A man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. I've been to Israel and I can picture kind of the scene, the setting, the terrain. It's pretty neat to be able to do that. The road to Jericho and these times were fraught with danger. They'd be mountainous. Robbers would hide in the mountains. Again, a very tough terrain, probably about 17 miles long. Uh, this man was certainly a Jew. The text tells us he was stripped, beaten, and left half dead. He was cast off the side of the road, obviously in very rough shape. This would be a very serious situation that Jesus is portraying within this parable. There's a um, movies made of stories of in the Bible, and one of the stories that was made about this was the Good Samaritan. Here's a picture I want to show you. I took a snapshot from this movie, but I think it's very good and helps us to imagine as Jesus is telling the story what his listeners would be imagining within their minds. The road to Jericho, very rough, kind of barren, uh, mountainous terrain, and there this man would be like this, stripped and beaten and left half dead, lying on the road, probably unconscious, and just waiting for whoever would come along, hopefully, to help him. This picture's the reality of the story. It helps us as those who are visual just to imagine that this is, this is the scene that Jesus is painting in the minds of his listeners, in the minds of us right now as well. Now what happens next is very interesting. You have a priest, Jesus says, and a Levite who happened to be traveling on the road. Now both of them come up to the 
man left for dead at different times. Both of them choose to avoid and pass by. Jericho was a hot spot for priests to live. So it would be very likely that a priest would be returning from service at the holy temple. It's possible that the priest thought this man was dead. And priests were not allowed to touch dead people. This would make them ceremonially defiled. However, what is clear and to his shame, this priest of God, uh, he did nothing. He did nothing. Next was the Levite. The Levites were not quite the same level of importance as priests, but they were considered righteous men and they were considered important. They assisted the priests in their sacrificial duties. And so again, consider of importance, you have a priest and a Levite, but sadly the Levite did as the priest did, which was nothing. Now notice in verse 31, we're not sure if this is what it's saying, but I just wanted to point out to you. Notice that the Levite, likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, that might mean just when he came to the place where the man was, but it could also mean he came to the place. He actually ventured a little bit closer than the priest. The priest wouldn't go anywhere near the guy, but the Levite might have ventured over just a little bit closer to get a closer look, but in the end, he, he chose to pass by as well. We're not sure what's happening there exactly, but I found that to be interesting and wanted to share that with you. But as we get to this point in this text... This is a very important place to pause because what we're essentially seeing here when it comes to the priest and the Levite and their unwillingness to do anything to care for this man left for dead, what we're seeing here, loved ones, are excuses. Excuses to avoid being a person of compassion. Now as we reflect on our lives, we will quickly ascertain that excuses are easy to come by when it comes to the neglect of those who need our love. I'm sure the priest was worried about becoming unclean. I'm sure he had a tired, long day from service, working hard, serving God. He needed to get home. He needed things to do, people to see, and so on. The Levite, it was a dangerous role. Maybe more thieves were around. I better best be going. Someone else will come along. Someone more gifted. Someone more uh, uh, in the ability to care for this person in this way. Someone else will do it. Yes, excuses are easy to come by when it comes to neglecting the role of compassion of the love of Christ within us and where he's to be seen from us as well. I wrote down a few excuses Think that pertain to these situations, pertain to our lives. It's amazing when we fail to love in areas of compassion and practical compassion, the excuse of pride. The excuse of pride seen in the story, I don't want to stoop down to that level. I'm better than that. I'm beyond that. I don't have time for that. I'm too proud for that. The excuse of prejudice. This person does not deserve my help. I don't like that individual. I don't care for that type of person. That person is beneath my socioeconomic status. I will not dwell in the same circles of that individual. We never say that aloud, of course. But it can go through our minds and our hearts. The excuses of pride, the excuses of prejudice, the excuses of priority. I'm just too busy. I have too much to do. Got to get home. Got to do this. Got to go here. Got to go there. I don't have time to stop and to assist in the love of compassion for the people that need my help. It's just simply not a priority. It's easy to find excuses as to why we're not men and women of compassion in Christ. But what Jesus does next is he refutes possibly the greatest excuse one could have in the context of this story being told. Enter the Samaritan. So in verse 33 he says, But a Samaritan, 
and his listeners who are, again, going to be almost predominantly, primarily Jewish, even as the word is spoken, Samaritan, there would be a, a shudder within them. This is a Samaritan. And as we know, we're about to know, Samaritan Jews were not the best of friends. In fact, Jews considered Samaritans half-breeds and essentially thought them as garbage. Jews hated Samaritans, and Samaritans evidently hated Jews. In verse 37, I want you to notice this. When Jesus asked, in which one of these was the neighbor, the lawyer could not even bring himself to say the name Samaritan. He just said the one who showed him mercy, probably because he just hated them so much he would not even say the term. Furthermore, the greatest insult a Jew could give to someone was to call them a Samaritan. You Samaritan. This happened to Jesus in John chapter 8. The religious leaders and all their pride and all their wickedness, they said, you are a Samaritan. You have a demon. Take that. It's evil. The greatest insult a Jew could receive is to be called a Samaritan. And Jesus was called that and a demon at the same time. All that to say this only reinforces the magnitude of the example of compassion given by Jesus. So the Samaritan sees the man, he stops, he begins to care for him. This is astounding. You have to place yourself in the context of what's happening here. The most unlikely person is caring for the most unlikely neighbor. This is the thrust of this passage. We must pause, we must learn. The most unlikely neighbor is caring for the most unlikely person. And this is the example Jesus holds up as compassionate people who have his spirit working within our lives. It's so important we've got to stop. And I want you to notice this within this parable. I want you to notice five elements of compassion in the example that Jesus gives. They will be on the screen to my left here and on the larger screens, of course, too. But notice the type of compassion that Jesus is going for within his followers. Number one, they all happen to start with C. Surprise, surprise, all right? But notice this. First of all, we see a core compassion. In verse 33, I love this. It says, when the Samaritan saw the man, it says he had compassion. Compassion is a beautiful word. It means to be moved to the inward parts. The NIV translates compassion as pity. It's not strong enough. It's more than that. Moving in the inward parts. Heartfelt, not guilt-stricken. It comes from his core. This word compassion is the same word used for Jesus looking upon the multitude who were hungry. When he saw the people who were like sheep without a shepherd. It's the same word used... And Luke 15, for the father running to greet his prodigal son, he saw him and had compassion. It's a compassion that runs deep. It's a compassion, listen, that is only produced by the Spirit of God. Loved ones, as followers of Jesus Christ, and this will look so different for so many different people in big ways and small ways, but everything in between, as followers of Christ, there must be seen within us some element at our core of compassion for Jesus Christ. I mean, check your life right now. Are there elements of compassion, of moved in your inward parts, in your soul, out of love for others, especially in need, who, who require help and assistance of love of Christ? If we are generally following Jesus Christ, we must have at our core elements of compassion that see people and hurt for people. Is that there in your life? It was a a couple of weeks ago or a month ago, whatever it was, I was pulling up to McDonald's with my two girls and I was just getting out of the car and I barely could close the door. I'm not sure I could close the door. And a man came up to me and 
It was a cold, windy day, and he was wearing shorts. He had a jacket on, so it just kind of seemed out of place a little bit. But he comes up, and he, he's like, hey, man, can I, can I get some money? And, and I was like, well, what do you need money for? And, and he's like, well, i got to get a ticket. i got to get home. i got a bus ticket. It's interesting. I've heard this line before in a different country, so I'm not sure if people are talking to each other. I don't know, but it's like the same story. And so right, I'm like, I don't, I don't think I believe you, man, you know? And, and I just listen to this guy, and in my heart, just like, he says, I go, so I asked him a follow-up question, like, so what do you need to do, and, and where, like, where do you live, and what are you trying to do? He's like, oh, i got to get this, i got to get that, and I just like it, you know, and, and I happen to have cash, I never have cash on me, but I happen to have cash on me, and I, and I pulled it, and I've, I've, I've learned the response that I want to do in these situations with multiple opportunities, but I pulled out a decent-sized bill, and I, and I just said, listen, I, I don't know what you're saying to me, and everything's happening, but I said, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And because I love Jesus Christ and because he loves me, he, is, he has commanded me to love others. And I just want you to know I'm, I'm going to give this to you in the name of Jesus Christ because I love you in, in his name. That's pretty, my two girls are sitting there. And my youngest, of course, is clueless. But my, my second girl, she's kind of looking up like, what's going on, Dad? You know? And the guy, as I said this, he's kind of like, whatever. You know? <laughs> he's just kind of like, I don't think you knew what to say. You know? and that, that's not even the point, too. But, but what I'm saying this to you, I mean, this is why I don't tell this story on any regard to draw attention to myself because I have so far to go. And quite honestly, there are so many of you in this church, I'm like, wow. Like your love, your sacrifice, your compassion, it's inspiring to me. I'm humbled by it. I admire you so much and I see it so often. But you give the funds to this man as a simple, simple way of expressing love. And I didn't even believe what he was saying. That's not the point either. The point is, is we do this because it's Christ in us. It doesn't matter what happens. It's interesting. We went into McDonald's and my girls are slow eaters, so it took us 30 minutes, 40 minutes, and and I thought this man give him the money, he'd go get his ticket, and he'd be gone home as he said he was going to do. But a half an hour later, I'm sitting there by the bathroom. He comes out of the bathroom, and he kind of looks at me, and he's like, uh-oh. You know? It was like that. And he kind of puts his head over, over his hood over his head and kind of walks out. I don't care, though. Like, I didn't believe him from the beginning. That's not the point. The point is not even like, you better do what you said to the money. The point is, as ambassadors for Christ and the love of Christ, we just extend ourselves regardless of the... We don't know what the man did in this parable who was left half dead if he went and found the Samaritan and hugged him. We have no idea what he did. If he just was like, oh, I'm alive, good, and went on. We, we don't know. That's not the point. The point is at our core, we need to have compassion and ready to extend it at the moment it's asked of us or the Holy Spirit gives of us. And I have a long way to go in this, but I believe it's right. And I want to do it in the name of Jesus Christ and empowered by the Spirit of God. And I want you to, too. Because as this church grows for, I'm telling you, if each one of us grow as our core of compassion for Christ, look out. Look out, Satan. Look out, darkness. Look out, hatred of the world, because love is coming. And it's coming in bushes and bunches. And it's going to be beautiful. Right in this parable, we see he had compassion. Secondly, we see a courageous compassion. So it's at his core why is it courageous? Because he's a Samaritan, that's why. He was crossing racial lines. He was doing the unthinkable. This kind of compassion takes courage. Listen, Christ-centered compassion cares not for race, nationality, class. Christ-centered compassion cares not for sexual orientation. Christ-centered compassion loves because we are called to love. We don't diminish truth. We don't compromise in our beliefs. We don't fail to love either. We love because that's Christ in us. And we love people in grace and we love people in truth. Regardless of where they come from, who they are, what they've done. 
We love them. That's the call. And honestly, some of us, some of us, we fight prejudice. Some of us, we fight bigotry. Some of us, we fight tremendous judgment in our heart. We would never say it out loud, but it's happening in our hearts. We need to repent of that sin. We need to repent. Who are we? Who are we to play that game with other people's lives? That's rejecting the very love of Christ within our own hearts that we received. There must be a courageous compassion. And one of the things we're learning here then, within this parable, is a compassionate love will take risks. This is a risky love this Samaritan's doing right here. It's very risky. Let me ask you, let me ask me. Is our love right now, can we point to areas in our life where our love is taking risks? It takes courage to love in this way. Can you point, it's easy to love the people who love us back. It's easy to sit inside our homes and be all comfortable and just keep watching TV and every now and then send a note of somewhere encouraging somewhere. It's a lot harder to get off our butts and to get out there in the love of Christ and to have a risk-taking, courageous, conform form of compassion within our lives. It was a core compassion, a courageous compassion. Notice this, it was a curative compassion, meaning a healing compassion. Look at verse 34 now. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil on oil and wine. His compassion here was practical. It was what was needed most. It was most most essential for the short term. It was then going to move on to the long term. We see here, though, the Samaritan's love was caring, healing, specific, and accurate with his love. What does this individual need right now? And wouldn't you know it, that hospitals throughout history were virtually invented by Christians. One of the earliest examples of what we know as hospitals today began in 251 AD. Let me read to you what Peter Hammond said about the impact of Christians upon the world in this area of caring for the sick, poor, and dying. The world before Christianity was a world without hospitals, a world without charity or respect for the sanctity of life. Hospitals were an innovation of Christianity, hence the universal healing symbol of a cross to represent hospitals. I love those things. Like, you don't think about it very much. When you think about it, you're like, yeah, that's true. That's awesome. Jesus rocks. The nursing profession was founded by Christians out of devotion for Christ. One of history's greatest humanitarian movements, the International Red Cross, was founded by Christians in response to the scriptural injunction to care for the sick and suffering. Christians such as Dr. Louis Pasteur have fueled some of the greatest practical advances in medicine. Pasteur probably saved more lives than any other individual in history through his inventions. The whole concept of charity was a Christian innovation. The love of strangers was unknown before Christ. The teaching and examples of Jesus Christ have inspired the greatest acts of generosity, hospitality, self-sacrifice, and service for the poor, sick, and needy over 2,000 years. That's exciting. And that's the impact of the gospel in our midst. Now listen, the temptation though is to look upon the people who have founded these great ministries and are doing this great work and to say, keep going. And every now and then write a small little check for something and feel good about yourself. That's not good enough. Yes, God raises up individuals with great vision to see massive works of love in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you have to hear this. I have to hear this today. Every single one of us has a part to play. And we got to figure out what part our part is in terms of love and compassion for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of God. It's not good enough to sit there and just watch. 
we got to act in love, not to gain favor with God, but to respond to the favor that we've been given in the love of Christ and to spur on and others on and ourselves on to say, how is my life being impacted and used in areas of love and compassion for Jesus Christ? Practically, at my core, courageously, and a curative type of compassion as well. Core, courageous, curative Next, notice charitable. It was a charitable compassion. Of course it was. Verse 34. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Notice this. Compassion in our lives in Christ will come at a cost. It comes at a cost. It comes at the cost of comfort at times. But ultimately, true compassion will come at the cost of self. There's no cost. It's not Christ-centered compassion. It's something else. The Samaritan gives up his own animal. He pays for the accommodations. True compassion easily gives. It's beautiful. It gives of self. It's anti-flesh. It's anti-world. But it's full of Christ. Charitable, generous, giving, self-giving at self-cost. Core, courageous compassion, curative compassion, charitable compassion. Finally, continuous. Continuous compassion. Look at verse 35. And the next day he took out two denarii, which was a lot, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay to you when I come back. So notice this. This compassion is not a one-time thing. It's ongoing. It's over and above. It goes the distance. What a test this is. A continuous compassion on our lives, on our church, as families. Is this emphasis for a season or is this something that we have within us for life? Is it part of our core again? Is it continuous in nature? This is the love that is to be seen from us. This is the source of compassion, the love of God, the scope of compassion to the least or the most unlikely. And it's fitting then that we end here with point three, which will be brief but very important, is this. The surety of compassion is the gospel. The surety the certainty of compassion is the gospel. Look at verse 36. So Jesus tells this amazing parable and then he says to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Now, the lawyer gave the right answer, but he did not have the right heart. And furthermore, I commend to you today that what Jesus is asking him to do, go and do likewise, is something the lawyer could never have done by himself. And loved ones, we cannot do by ourselves either. It's impossible to love this way on our own. That's why we need the gospel. The only way we stand any chance of seeing this kind of love genuinely through our lives is if Christ is working within our lives. Consider this, consider this. Jesus Christ is the epitome of the Good Samaritan. Consider you and I in our sin left half dead, without a chance or a hope, stripped of everything we had because of our sin. But Jesus Christ comes in at such love and sacrifice and cost and effort and mercy and compassion upon us. And when he comes alongside us and he picks up uh, us up and he loves us and cares for us and he heals us and he redeems us and he saves us and then he sends us, Think what happens in the gospel in our lives. Jesus Christ and his love comes to us, lives in us, 
So it cannot stay there. It must then go from us. That's the only way that this love happens in our lives. It's the gospel. It's the only way. i got to try harder. i got to try harder. No, you don't. you got to take the love that you've received in Jesus Christ, let it live in you, and when it's genuinely in here and bearing fruit, it goes from you, and the gospel is at work. It comes, it lives, and it goes from our lives. The only way this happens, the only way this happens is the genuine love of Jesus Christ through his gospel within our lives. The only way then we could hear the command, go and do likewise and have any hope of it happening. The lawyer had no chance, no chance, apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's why Jesus says, go and do likewise, because once again, it's the opportunity of seeing, I can't do it. I can't do it, Lord, without you. You must do this within me. But this is why, though, countless people and organizations have been thrust forward in the love by this very passage because Christ does live in them and therefore Christ is seen through them. This is the power of the gospel in our world. Think of the ministries that we support. Think of this Christmas time, Samaritan's Purse, taken from the very passage we read today. Again, something you may have not thought about in a little while. It's awesome. Samaritan's Purse impacting Tens of thousands of people, children, families throughout this world in the name of Jesus Christ with the gospel and practical ways of love and care. Think of Compassion Canada, an organization we love, a, a picture of, of 500 children or 500 children supported from this church and areas throughout the world going forward. Compassion, compassion in Jesus' name, responding to the call of the gospel because Christ is in them and Christ is seen through them and lives are being impacted all over the place. We think of ministries within this church. We think of our harvest market and ministering to dozens and dozens or hundreds of individuals throughout our community in practical ways for the love of Christ, orphan care which is beginning, practical ways of the love of Christ, of caring for those who have no chance in love, but indeed as well. We think of recovery ministry, taking people of those suffering from addiction and whatnot and coming in and in struggling and caring for them and, and, and loving them and sharing them truth of the gospel. We think of ministries, again, throughout our church or seen within forms of counseling or seen within Christmas compassion or benevolence in our downtown Hamilton outreach which is going out again in a couple of weeks and all the things that are, that are happening in this way and people using the benevolence of Christ to see because that's what compassion does in Christ. This is the fruit that is born through our lives. This is what happens. People on mission trips across this world and, and ministering to churches and going up to First Nations and being in Romania and, and places in Afghanistan, whatever it might be. It's a response to the gospel of Christ being in us. But again, it's easy to look at those people and say, yeah, do a good job, do a good job, and here we are. That's not good enough, as I said. So we end here today with this. Who needs our love, loved ones? Who needs the compassion of Christ through your, through your life at this time? Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a family. Maybe it's a child in need. Maybe it's a single mom who's barely making it. Maybe it's a neighbor who's just in such despair. Maybe it's an individual, a stranger you will come across and you see that is just totally without hope. Maybe it's someone sick, someone facing death, someone who's scared to death of the predicament they are in. Maybe it's someone who's oppressed, someone who's been estranged, who needs our love in this way. I believe sometime soon that you and I, we all will have opportunity to respond as good Samaritans. The choice will come when we see that opportunity, will we seize that opportunity? 
Some of you right now are being called to love people, frankly, you have in the past hated. To the most unlikely person. You are being called to someone that you have struggled with so much and you have deep resentment towards. But that could be your opportunity for the compassion of Christ to come alongside and to love the person who would least expect you to do it because you love Jesus Christ. That is why we do these things. This is the power of the family of God moving in the compassion of Jesus Christ. Remember the ultimate question is not who is my neighbor. The ultimate question is what kind of neighbor am I? What kind of neighbor am I? Let's pray. Father, obviously this is such a big deal to you. And I pray then it's a big deal to us. And I pray, Lord, just as my wife and I will sit down and we will discuss what this looks like for our lives and for our families as we consider this parable and the power of this truth upon our lives, that we must be men and women seen with a genuine compassion coming from us, not so we earn your favor or points, God. It's because we are responding to what we've been given in you. We've been so loved, therefore we love in return. That's why we love you, God, so we love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, I pray many, many people, individuals, families, will be responding even today to sit down and to say, how, does, how can our lives change? How can our giving change? How can our time change? How can our cost of self change? To respond to those who need your love so much. And I think probably the starting point, Lord, is just as you see the commands, Lord, as I see the commands of, of go and do likewise or do this and live, I just admit, Lord, I can't do it. I can't do this on my own. I need you to do it in me. And so maybe that's our starting point this morning. Maybe it's simply starting by saying, Lord, I can't. I need you. I need you. I need you to do this. I need your righteousness. I need your holiness. I need you. God, would you fill me with such a love for you that so naturally love would come from you to the people that I encounter in my life. That's a great place to start. Lord, I need you. I need you to place your love in me again. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. That's a great thing to do too. We repent of our selfishness. We repent of our greed. We repent of making ourselves a priority. And instead, Lord, we say, would you forgive us? But we anticipate your grace, your grace washing over us again to make us more selfless and less selfish. In the name of Jesus, amen.